to myself I had to make a change Pretend landscape will show me the way We're in the Great White North where it is uh, really cold right now. It's actually been cold here for quite a while. Um, I don't know about you guys, but it got down to minus 40 degrees Celsius uh, out here last night. Uh, how cold was it in Edmonton for you? <laughs> Very cold. Very cold. Dying cold. Yeah, and that's not including the wind chill. It's like, holy moly. I shoveled snow yesterday and it was, I cannot do it. I did it for five minutes. I had to go inside and warm up for like five minutes. Then I had to go out again. <laughs> yeah, I had to break things up too. It's like the dog goes out for five minutes, runs back inside, and then I've got to go shovel, feed the horses. The horses are eating way more because they've got to stay warm in this, right? So it's like, uh, hope the hay makes it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's crazy cold. And then we've been getting quite a bit of snow too, which we don't normally get once it gets past a certain temperature. But yeah. Anyway, um, I guess that brings me to uh, another episode of Regenerative Landscapes. Um, I guess Christmas has come and gone and New Year's as we're in a brand. It's 2022. It's hard to believe that. Um, I know we're probably mostly we've been hunkered down because it's been so cold. But what did you guys do for uh, for Christmas and New Year's? Dan. Not too much. I mean, Christmas had some family over because we all felt pretty comfortable. We were all pretty, uh, well, everybody was vaccinated in some capacity. Um, and yeah, it was just nice to have some family over again and just have a nice meal amongst everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was nice. And then yeah, New Year's went over to a friend friend's place. They were having a little get together. And yeah, same thing. Like, you know, we were all vaccinated, so we we're all feeling comfortable and it was just nice to <laughs> interact with people yeah that i haven't interacted with in yeah about a year and a bit so yeah well, that was it... good just to interact with people yeah <laughs> well it's, it's the little things right that we've um i guess normally would take for granted but now under these circumstances just seeing people outside of the people that live in your house is like oh it's exciting <laughs> yeah i know for us um uh, we we had actually bought tickets to go to, there was a event at Lily Lake. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but it's, it's a beautiful um, kind of a renovated homestead farm. They've turned some of the barns into these really nice, you know, with stages and sit down eating areas and all this kind of stuff. And they have a lot of weddings and events that go on. But sure enough, only a couple of days before, because of the um, the way the Omicron variant was going, they said, ah, uh, we're going to have to cancel. And so the people that we were planning on going with said, well, why don't you just come over to our house and we'll just have a little New Year's thing ourselves. And we thought, you know, that actually sounds really good. So pretty low key um, New Year's for us too. But it was nice because we haven't seen these guys in, oh, since the summertime or something like that. Um, so that was nice. And then as far as Christmas went, um, it was kind of weird. It was for the most part, just Steve and I. But um, he got me a really cool Christmas present. What did he get you? A new drum set. Ooh. It's electronic. It's it's electronic, but it is way bigger than my other one and can do so much more than my other one. You can program all kinds. Like I could make my drums sound like screaming cats if I want to or 
whatever. Like I can program all kinds of stuff in and um, you can play to tracks. You can record tracks. You can do looping like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun once I get the hang of it. But there's a lot of um, instruction manual to look through. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So and how about you, Kevin? I know Christmas isn't normally as big for you, but um, did you do a little bit of something or, or do the New Year's thing? No, not really. But I like turkey, so I ate turkey. Well, I just celebrate all the all the all the festivals, whether it's like Canadian or Chinese or whatever. Like everything, just throw that at me. I like food. I like oh, yeah, just that's anything good. that's an excuse to celebrate, right? Actually, <laughs> it's funny you mention that. We f- we tried. We made our first deep fried turkey. Holy deep- crap! Was that good? That does sound good. <laughs> well, and it takes uh, like. It only took uh, an hour to cook it versus the traditional in the oven takes hours, right? Um, so it's like KFC. Well, no, it, because it's not as greasy. <laughs> if you have it at the right temperature, it makes a nice crisp uh, skin on it right away so that it doesn't soak up all that grease, oil. Um, and then it uh, cooks really nicely to keep the moisture in it so you don't get a dry turkey. And we were really impressed with the burner and the like the, the stovetop we had because we were cooking it outdoors in minus 30. And other than having to change the propane tank out because the propane tanks start to freeze when it gets really cold. Um, we only had to change it out once, but the burner, it worked all the way through and still cooked the turkey in the same amount of time. Like it didn't really change the, the time for it. So we were really happy because we were thinking, oh man, we're going to have to build walls and try to keep the heat in and do all this weird stuff. But, but no, it worked great. So uh, we're looking forward to more, deep fried um everything and even using the big we got the big pot now we can make um you know soups or stews or have a fish fry or do a a lobster boil or whatever you can do all kinds of stuff it doesn't have to be just the deep frying so so yeah that was cool but um but yeah so um anyway i'm glad at least you all stayed relatively warm and got to see some people and eat some food um I just thought I'd start today. It was kind of an off the cuff thing last minute, but just because it's been so freaking cold. Um, one of my friends actually messaged talking about the, the Tesla, uh, the EV cars. And uh, she was saying, yeah, uh, I've got a friend that could only go 150 kilometers <laughs> before the battery died. And normally they can go, I think it's something like 423. 423 right? Yeah, 423 kilometers in you know optimal conditions and she says oh yeah they were only able to go to like 150 kilometers before it died because the cold's just sucking everything out and it's not recharging properly and everything's cold and so i went and kind of looked into it a bit you'll find this kind of amusing so first of all there are some tips tesla has right on their site for cold weather use and keep in mind their idea of cold weather is probably a lot different than ours it's California code five yeah. degrees. <laughs> Northern California. Woo-hoo-hoo. Anyway, um, so basically, one of them says uh, use the scheduled departure button to maximize charging time before your drive. Uh, that way, you can your car can determine how soon before your drive it needs to charge without wasting, you know, just charging all day and all night for no reason and wasting energy, right? So it can, if as long as you program where your destination is it can um, tell, like it can figure out how long it should charge. Uh, It says preheat the car by activating preconditioning or defrost in the Tesla app. I think that's kind of a given up here. (laughs) But But does Uh, that take 
electricity from the battery as well? Well, or I'll get to I'll get to that. Time? Yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. It's kind of okay, funny. Okay. Um, anyway, another one is uh, watch for the snowflake icon, which indicates the battery is too cold to access all of its stored energy. If I remember correctly, my friend was saying the snowflake icon was on the whole time. So uh, it says at this time, battery power and regenerative braking are limited. <laughs> in other words, they, they didn't have very far to go before it kicked the bucket. Um, they also suggest, this is actually a good one for anybody who's got a newer vehicle, I guess. It says, when possible, use seat heaters uh, and reduce your cabin temperature um, because that can conserve energy. So instead of cranking up your cabin heat, they're like, keep it as low as you can you can handle in the cabin and just use your seat heaters. I'm like, okay, that would save a bit of energy. Uh, of course, drive at moderate speeds and limit frequent and rapid acceleration and deceleration. That goes for anybody. It just saves gas or energy. Um, consider the chill mode. I don't know what the chill mode is, but it sounds something to do with cold. Uh, use the plug-in as much as possible when not in use so the vehicle can use the charging system rather than battery to retain heat. Yeah, okay, fine. And then, okay, this is the funny part. Kevin, you'll get a kick out of this. So, minus 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Do you guys know what that is in Celsius? That's zero. It is zero. So, <laughs> what's funny is this is what they're calling cold. <laughs> um... So they say, if you do not use any preconditioning features, this is the temperature where features will become limited. Wow, that doesn't give us much leeway up here, does it? Um, I also looked, there was another site. Um, it's from uh, Inside EVs, they're called. And they actually did a, actually, I'm not sure if it was them or somebody that they wrote about anyway. Somebody did a test um, for the Tesla model three standard range plus i think it is i don't know all the models so i'm not familiar but anyway it's the one that's it's got an estimated range of 423 kilometers normally and and in colder weather the testing they did uh in winnipeg so that tells you it's it's legit because you know how cold winnipeg can get um this vehicle struggles to exceed 322 kilometers so, so and, you lose and they, 100 kilometers yeah, just by well, where you're living <laughs> and they also didn't even specify what temperatures it was tested in. I'm guessing it would be average. So average winter temperature for Winnipeg is minus 19. So that doesn't account for when we have periods like this. So it'll just go downhill from that 322, I'm sure, as it goes closer to minus 40. But, um, but anyway, I thought that was rather interesting. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts. Like it's, it's too, too bad in a way because there's a lot of good things about the EV the, uh, the battery vehicles and that kind of thing, electric vehicles. But you can see where in our northern climates, there's some logistical issues, right? So before you consider shaming somebody for having their gas-powered vehicle, consider that some of us, at least at certain points, may need to resort to them to get through the winter, <laughs> right? Yeah, like until until technology catches up where... A, you have a bigger battery capacity. At least I would think a bigger battery capacity would help with that because if you lose some of the capacity due to just the cold weather, you, <laughs> at least if you have a bigger battery, then maybe you'll still get a decent range. But also just, yeah, better technology to have batteries that can survive or run well in extreme temperatures, whether it's super hot or super cold. In our case, super cold. 
or um, even working on more of the like the hybrid vehicles for our climates, knowing that maybe the the pure EVs can't handle it all year round up here, right? I don't know. Uh, or you go the back to the future route, just start creating vehicles that burn garbage, and then you'll create heat as as well as energy to drive. <laughs> Only if. Yeah. Or just stick with oil and gas, because oil and gas is the future. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, um, I don't want to stereotype, but like over in China, they're, at least in the cities and stuff, there's, there's a lot more like bicycles and walking and that kind of thing, I imagine. What do they yeah, do when it gets cold, cold? They cannot afford vehicles. They can only ride a bicycle. <laughs> Also but for, a much larger population. Too. Yeah. But for, for people that do drive, um, like in the wintertime, I know it's not as cold as here, but what I guess what changes do they make between spring, uh, summer and, and winter transportation over there? Like what's the norm? There's not really like any change summer and winter because like even winter times, it's still pretty warm. It's like average 10 degrees or 15 degrees over Yeah, there. I didn't think it really got below freezing very often. Yeah, no. So um, I think like there's a huge amount like a big proportion of vehicles that's ev now and they come up with some really good incentive like over there if you want to get a vehicle you have to buy the license plate like the license plate it's very expensive it costs you almost like twenty thousand canadian dollars to get just the plate and not everyone can get that you have to like go for a bid and you have to win the bid and every month they only release like five thousand plates or something like that so it's like a huge bidding war and yeah, so they, but, they ration it and they have you in a pool kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, and then now, but now they're coming up with a new thing saying that if you buy an EV, you get a green plate, which is free. And then you mm-hmm. can drive it anytime, anywhere. Because um, they're saying like down down the road, I, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't want to like give out false information, but maybe like, because I know certain cities in China, they are limiting like the number of vehicles that can go right. on the road. For yeah. example, if it's like odd number plate, you can go out on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like mm-hmm. things like that. But EV, yeah. I think you can just go whenever because it's like a green plate. It's different. Yeah, well, that, like, that is, that's actually a good thing. It's it's encouraging. Um, it's giving incentive to go green, right? So that's nice. It's kind of like when they do the water rationing here and they say, okay, you guys, if you're going to water your lawn, everybody with a last name to this part of the alphabet does it on even days and the other guys do it on odd days or whatever. So um, that's kind of actually cool. Um, what, what do, I guess, what do the rural, like the farmers and, and whatnot do? That I do not know. Because I, uh, you know, I'm a city boy. I don't know no, anyone. Like, I'm just curious. <laughs> and I mean, just because you're from there doesn't mean you're going to know the whole of China. I don't China. talk to peasants. <laughs> it's, well, it's like us here. It's like just because, you know, we live in Alberta doesn't mean we know everything that's going on out in the Maritimes or something, right? So <laughs> anyway, so that's pretty cool. But yeah, just something to think about um, if you need a vehicle that handles cold conditions versus the above zero uh, temperatures. You might need to consider um, two vehicles or maybe a hybrid vehicle or, you know, maybe not driving in certain weather conditions. I don't know. But um, well, hydrogen cell. Actually, that's that's coming. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes, because, of course, everybody envisions, oh, my God, it's the the dirigible boom explosion thing. But it doesn't have to be like that either. <laughs> 
I mean, yes, it's a little more volatile than some other energy things, but yeah, assuming that the, again, it's technology has to play catch up and has to get to a point where, um, the consume, like, you know, everyday citizens can start getting into it. Cause I think some of that technology is already out there and kind of being used, but to utilize it in a way, especially if we're taking in the context of vehicles and stuff, integrating into our vehicles. The, I think the big, one of the big challenges is going to be basically creating a whole new infrastructure for fueling your uh, hydrogen powered car. Cause mm-hmm. you can't do it at, well, I mean, you, you could maybe put it at a gas station, but again, it's a completely different fuel thing. So you'd have to, cause th- like, that's the problem I find with the EV cars is if you're not in, because like here we're so spread out. Yeah. If you're in a concentrated vehicle, city hub, maybe, but it's harder to do when you're more spread out or rural. Right. But um, yeah. same, same thing with the biodiesel, right? Like there's pockets, but there's lots of gaps in between. So unless you have jerry cans upon jerry cans, it's hard to figure out where you can fuel up. Mm-hmm. So that's why kind of the hybrid, because like that technology, I think, is getting better. I think Toyota, I think, is have, well, has is, their new RAV4 your... something that's supposed to, like it's a hybrid, but the battery in it is supposedly one of the best ones that are on the market now like and yeah, by best I think like you get a range of like maybe like 80 kilometers maybe a little bit more and like yeah. doesn't sound like a lot but if no you but still it to, if it offsets your gas usage and your your wear and tear and everything because like is your because you've got a rav right but is yours before the ev or is yours a uh, um hybrid oh, as well oh it's definitely before because okay. i got mine like like a decade ago so wow and th- there might have been some EV stuff then, but it's definitely not as good as it is now. And it would have been really highly priced initially too. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, very very interesting. Hmm. So yeah, some things to ponder. I was gonna get that was just kind of a a random topic based on the cold, but I guess I'll get into our um, green scene. Dan always does the cool voice for that. Welcome to the green scene. Um, I've got. A few articles from Happy Eco News. It's such a funny name, but they actually have really good stuff. <laughs> um, okay, so this, I guess this first one is from January 3rd, 2022. So it's pretty re- relevant, pretty up to date. And I just came across, so the the large cargo ships, uh, and you're, you probably see a lot more in the news now, a number of things. First of all, the fuel, it's called bunker fuel, which is a very cheap uh, comparatively cheap and dirty fuel compared to other fuels out there. But that's what they used for transport for these. Um, and the other part of it is a lot of these ships actually end up dumping their loads, of course, by accident, not intentionally, but into the ocean. And so there's whole like sea cans and stuff that floats up to beaches in remote areas with who knows what in it, right? Um, but anyway, they're hoping to they're doing some test projects using a large kite. And when I say large, I'm not talking about little kites that you fly around off your hand. I'm talking about a thousand square meter kite. So they're pretty big. And uh, the nice thing about them is they can, you know, basically clip on to any existing ship. You don't need any special stuff for them. Um, they might, they might have a, a little electric system or whatever that can be installed so that, so that you can, release or or reel them in or whatever but other than that it doesn't take anything away from the existing infrastructure 
um, but they're hoping to use them across regular alley lanes for uh, these transport ships to offset the use of the the fuel and also maybe help keep them on course so that they don't have as many of these dumpings um, because uh, right now they figure approximately 80% of the world's goods are transported by about 50,000 of these ships. That's, I mean, 50,000 in the, for the whole global world doesn't sound like a lot, but just think of them going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth constantly full of sea cans, right? Stacked multiple yeah, like, sea cans high kind of thing, right? Like and, they're large vessels. <laughs> they yeah. carry a lot. So when you think of that, um, this is actually responsible for more than 2% of the global carbon emissions. And here, I know everybody's on the poor cows case and they're on the, the gas of the vehicles or whatever. And those are all legitimate, you know, components as well. But um, I think these ships have been kind of going by with the wayside and I, I'm glad that they're starting to look at them. Uh, they also release about 10 to 15% of the global sulfur dioxide or sulfur oxide which I believe is one of those things that makes acid rain and um, nitrous oxide emissions. So it, uh, there, I think France is the, is the country that's been doing some uh, experimentation development with this, but now they're going to do some trials, I think between, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I think it's between Europe and the States or something. And if they go well, They'll start adding these into the fleets because, again, there's not a lot of extra cost to put add them into the existing infrastructure, but it can save, uh, it can reduce the carbon emissions by up to 20%. They're projecting so, and it doesn't. That's that's actually quite a lot when these things are going across the ocean constantly. Yeah, and then uh, it also makes you, makes you realize this whole thing about people saying support local shopping and locally produced products whenever possible. This is part of it too, because if you can reduce what you're buying from overseas, then not as many of these ships have to go back and forth either, right? So. But stuff is cheaper if it's made from I China. Know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm saying whenever possible, I know there are times when we will, we will need to get some things from our friends across the way, but, um, you know, trying to do more local. And it goes both ways too, like um, Europe and Africa and Australia, all those guys, the more they can get in-house in their locations and not get anything from other areas as well, um, it will all help, right? But yeah, just, it, it was mind-boggling to find out those numbers and stuff among other things. And then these kites, they fly like 300 meters above the ships. So they're quite a ways up there. Um, but they, uh, at least in the, um, the video footage I saw, they seem to really help pulling these ships along. Now, granted, I realize that there's times where there's no wind or it's blowing the wrong way or whatever. It's kind of like a sailboat, right? Like you can use it at certain times and in certain directions. But, um, I guess in these areas they're planning on using them, it's very rare there's no wind. So it can help for most, most of the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, and then, uh, again, another happy eco news article from January 6th, which is uh, today. So it's really up to date. Um, have you guys heard of ghost ponds at all? No, no. Why is it? Well, when you think of ghosts, what do you think of? 
Ghost dead people. Dead, dead things. Yeah, exactly. Or things that you can't see or things that are no longer there or whatever, right? Um, it was actually really weird because I looked into this and then um, Cherry Dodd from the Native Plant Society, she made a post um, talking about some of this stuff and gee, how could we apply it to over here? And it was really weird, but very cool because it means it's very pertinent. So anyway, um, a ghost pond uh, is generally a pond that's been filled in to increase agricultural production. Or oh, pond. Sorry, I, I thought you said pond, P-A-W-N. So I was, I'm just very oh, confused. Okay. We're going to pawn off ponds. Yeah. <laughs> pond. Pond. Uh, pond. Yes, yeah, sorry. Cool. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> now I'm less uh, confused. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't always enunciate my words properly. But anyway. No, I'm just deaf. So what they've been finding is, because this has been going on since, I don't know, the 60s, 70s. That's when the, the whole filling in of things really start to start taking off, right? But anyway, um, what they've been finding is there are a lot of seeds and eggs of aquatic flora and fauna that are on the bottom of these that have just been covered over. but a lot of them can remain viable anywhere from 10 to 100 years in that state. So with careful excavation, they can peel off the layer on top, and then they actually could resurrect these ponds with flora and fauna from that time period. And in a lot of cases, because uh, they've been doing a lot of this in the UK, what they've been finding is a lot of um, the species that are getting resurrected are actually turning out to be ones that are uh, rare or possibly extinct from those areas. And instead of getting seed or, or life from other areas and, and transplanting them in by peeling off this layer and, and putting the water back in or allowing the water to fill in again, because a lot of them, they still have existing subterranean water. Um, it's just been kind of plugged up on top. So with um, some careful monitoring and everything, they could actually rejuvenate these ponds to their prior state and maybe even help improve the adjacent land around them. Because as we know, wetlands are really important um, for reducing overall temperatures, um, improving the habitat diversity, yada, 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 right? Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. Um, and then the, uh, uh, what was I saying? Um, oh yeah. So the, when I was talking about the, the soil saturation, so what they've been finding is the farmers that have been doing this, like, so filling in, uh, thought that they'd be gaining a lot more farmland, right? So it was to their advantage. And then now after this time has elapsed in a lot of cases, they're now finding out because there's water seeping in from below the water, the, the farmlands or that, that new, um, filled in land is not still not farmable or the soil quality or nutrients or whatever that's in that area is not conducive to whatever they're growing around it either because it's, it's different. So now they're, they're using that to encourage farmers. Okay, well, let's get it back to its prior state and it will actually be more beneficial than if you keep trying to fight with it and do things to make it farmable. So yeah, they're yeah, just trying to say, throw in some restoration principles and <laughs> whatnot into it versus just, yeah, <laughs> going gung-ho about it and not just taking a moment to think about, well, what can we <laughs> do to make this more efficient, I guess? And sometimes, yeah, they just have to learn, right? 
Yeah. And, and well, and of course there's a, the whole information highway too, right? So mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't know any better when they're doing this. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is just what we do. Grandpa did this and whatever. And this is how things go. And then now they're finding like, oh, geez, after all this time on our family farm, there's still this area that we can't seem to plow or use or nothing grows there or whatever it is. Right. Um, but it's also a good uh, leverage tool for the ecologists to be able to get the farmers on board with transferring it back. So, and um, this, the, the big project, the Norfolk Ponds project in the UK, they've restored um, 250 lost ponds to date. And uh, it'll be interesting to see over the next however many years, how, again, the, the scientific information, how things go there, like how many more rare species come back from the brink of extinction, how much biodiversity increases, how much the soil quality improves, the water quality, everything else. And uh, to find out that it's more valuable than just filling in a hole. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the parallels are and what the differences are from the UK versus over North America, for example, because it'd be nice to find out, can we apply those same principles here or do we have to tweak them a bit differently because of our climate or what species are growing there or what, right? So I guess in Cherry's post, um, some people are already starting to put together lists of plants that they feel uh, might be represented or what kind of, um, what kind of a path to follow over here to, to help it work better over here versus what they're doing over there might not be exactly a template for here, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because yeah, every every region is going to be different. With yeah, what flora, fauna, and all the things that make up an ecosystem are going to yeah, what that makeup is going to be in a certain area. So yeah, it's not always a one to one comparison. But yeah, if you can even make some sort of a framework or design that or template, yeah, that you can kind of apply to multiple places, but not saying like don't take this word for word. But here's kind of a yeah, here's yeah, a base, kind of baseline, and then you put in the things that are different to work for your particular situation. Yeah. So, so yeah, I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, they call them ghost ponds because they've been ghosted dead for so long, but they can be resurrected and brought back to life. Maybe they just call them zombie ponds. Hmm, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, um, and then my my last article is actually from EcoWatch and it's called I kind of like this it's called the climatarian diet you hear of all these there's the keto diet the vegetarian diets all these different diets right and um, usually what people are looking for is a quick fix to whatever it is get healthier reduce the the weight um, or get away from eating something that's unhealthy whatever but Not in me. This, I want to gain weight <laughs> Yeah, we could put Kevin on the end of one of those kites off the ship and he'd just go, woo. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, this climatarian diet um, basically is mindfully consuming food to help the environment while eating healthier overall. So that makes sense. It's not a, it's not a quick fix, but it's basically suggesting. Um, so as a consumer, if you eat uh, more whole foods, less processed foods, support locally produced foods, uh, reduce your intake of animal-based proteins somewhat. I mean, there's a lot of people that can't do without, and we don't want to take away from the farmers either. But you can also support eco-conscious animal-based protein production 
Um, so things like grass-fed or naturally raised, um, more efficiently raised animal proteins like rabbit and poultry, certain fish, um, as opposed to the high production kind of farming methods, and um, also supporting the uh, reduced uh, insecticides and pesticides and commercial um, fertilizer application stuff, right? Um, also supporting biodiversity as a consumer. So this is something you might not think of, but it actually helps in the grand scheme of things. Make sure you eat a diverse diet um, because that will promote farmers to grow a diverse number of crops too, right? Um, help to advocate towards improved land use. So it's not just the farmland. There's lots of ways you can do that even in the city as Dan and Kevin and I know, um, whether it's planting some native plants in your yard or uh, growing some of your own vegetables to offset things, whatever it is, but um, do some natural like composting, things like that. Um, Dan talked about this quite a bit in one of our other episodes, uh, reducing food waste. So if you can have smaller uh, portions so that you're not wasting what you're eating and compost what is left over, um, that helps there. If you can do valid, scientific, unbiased research into the food plot products you plan on eating, so don't go sourcing stuff just from hearsay from some dude on the internet. Go to a reputable company or a scientific organization, um, you know, something like even like Alberta Health or, or the government or whatever, ones that are known to have generally good, reliable information, not, you know, your cousin Billy Bob. So, um, but anyway, if you do this research into these products you're planning on eating, then you can find out things as well. Because sometimes you think, oh, I'm buying local, I'm doing my part. And then you find out the food product might be local, but it was created from things brought in from wherever far away, right? Um, yeah, I so just you, have to look down the chain a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so you've you got to get the whole picture and be a little more aware as a consumer. Um, then we've got, uh, oh, this is kind of, well, it's, it's interesting because I think Dave, uh, Dan gave some stats that the episode as well when he was talking about the food wastage or whatever. But this one's just a little bit more for um, towards the, I guess, the, far, the farming consumer angle. So food systems impact 26% of greenhouse gas emissions. And this is from a reputable source, Science. They did a 2018 study, so it's also fairly uh, up to date. That's the other thing. If you're looking at something from the 1940s, it might not be as relevant. Um, not always, but a lot of times. But anyway, um, of this 20 26% of the greenhouse emissions produced by food systems, 32% is from land use, 39% is from agricultural production, 3.5% is from food processing, 5.5% is from packaging, 4% is from retail, 2.5% is from consumer preparation. So even just making your meals at home or whatever, you're going to use a bit, right? So, uh, but anyway, 8.6% uh, is food waste. So if you can cut any of those areas at anywhere along the chain, whether you're a farmer or a consumer, um, then it actually starts to add up and make a difference. So as a farmer versus the consumer, if they can do things like, uh, design and build more efficient greenhouses because greenhouses 
traditional commercial greenhouses do um, produce a lot of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions as well. So things like doing passive greenhouses, better insulation, maybe operating your greenhouse seasonally because minus 40, it may not be as conducive. Anyway, uh, that kind of stuff. More direct sales. So a lot more farms are doing direct like farm to table or farmer's markets uh, or sales right off the farm to the consumer and bypassing the kind of middleman now. Um, that will help out because then you have the logistics of, again, the transportation and the repackaging and processing and all that kind of stuff. Pasture or farmers that are doing uh, pasture raised, grass fed, rotational grazing versus intensive systems. Um, also looking at their species that they're producing that are possibly better suited to their environment. So like up here, we might look at chickens or something that are more suited to the cold. Like we've got a Canadian breed of chicken called the Chanticleer, and they've got smaller combs that are less likely to freeze. They're fairly tough, hardy chickens versus getting some bantam from the tropics might not be your best bet up here. Versus if you go down south, you might want one that's better suited for the heat, right? So... So look at the ones that are suited for your individual operations needs. Um, better land management for the farmer's part, of course. So increasing biodiver biodiversity, preserving their wetlands, their woodlands, their grasslands, uh, reducing or eliminating their pesticides, herbicides, chemical fertilizers, um, doing their rotational grazing and so on and so forth. And for farmers too, because they have to make a living. So if the overall... Let's just say more people go to um, plant-based proteins a little more often and animal-based proteins a little less often. Um, some of these farmers need ways to recoup that additional income. So there's other ways like value-added products and services that they can offer. So whether it's maybe having tours to their farm or uh, putting on workshops or like special events or having, having other things go on with their farm in conjunction that aren't directly maybe the, the animal sales or something. These are things that can help offset these other areas. Yeah, so anyway, diversifying a little bit. Yeah. So I thought uh, that sounds cool because this is right on par with kind of what I want to eventually do with a, a mixed farm operation. But, um, but yeah, so this is what they're calling the climatarian diet. So it's not, it's not a fancy uh, fix all your problems diet, but it is a, being more conscientious as a consumer and as a farmer so that you can make little differences in the overall environmental situation and the, the climate change, right? So I thought that was interesting because a lot of people don't think of that part of it. They're just thinking of saving money, eating healthier, possibly the environment like directly impacted from things like overgrazing and weeds or um, the adding the chemicals to it or whatever, but not really thinking of the that big um, global picture or um, all these little things adding up to something, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have any further thoughts about that, but. Uh, no, I think just, yeah, general thing I kind of got out of that was, yeah, just kind of <laughs> think about, I mean, yeah, when it comes to any diet, just thinking about, yeah, what you're eating, but then also when it comes to kind of the farmer production side of it, looking at, well, yeah, if you're not going to be eating, if consumers are going to get behind this idea of not eating as much, yeah, like you said, like animal protein, then yeah, how do you kind of recoup that? Because I think, yeah, a lot of people might not think, well, if I'm going to start eating more plant-based, not going to really think about, well, that's going to really impact a cattle farmer because you're not mm -hmm. eating 
you know, beef it as much anymore, if at all, then yeah, they're kind of hooped that way. And I don't think it's fair for uh, a whole industry to kind of be <laughs> labeled as uh, a, not a villain, but <laughs> just uh, more, more of a negative or, aspect of it though, for sure. Yeah. And trying to find other way. And, but also on the other side of that too, um, it's not always like the most clean way when it comes to eating a strict plant diet either because you know no, especially that's... all these all these areas that turn cropland into strictly like it's a monoculture we're only going to do corn to you know make all these you know plant-based things or soybean mon- anyway it's just a monoculture uh crop um yeah. on or even... such large scales uh can have detrimental effects too yeah so. and even the um the processing part too right somebody might yeah. think okay i'm going to be all plant-based but now you're doing the beyond meat thing. It costs more to produce that patty or sausage or whatever, because it's not a raw product. So you're having to manufacture that in a, in a production facility than it is to possibly go out and get your rabbit or your chicken. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so it just depends. So that, that's why I'm saying is there's no straight answer. It's just look at every situation and assess it on a kind of case by case scenario. Because you're yeah. just, you're never sure with, at what point some things might be more beneficial than others. And even even some things that are a little trickier to deal with, like, so back to the farmers that are raising livestock. Well, there's another kind of issue too. If everybody stops eating beef and lamb and pork or whatever, guess what? There's now no need for those animals and they go extinct. So balancing out, I'd still like to have some cows and some sheep and some pigs and stuff around. So again, maybe not saying, Oh, just cut it out altogether, but just reduce it a little bit and change your, your farming methods or whatever. And then it's, it'll work out. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So on that note, um, everybody stay warm. And uh, we, I think we've been forgetting to mention this the last while, but as always, uh, please subscribe, share, like, listen to us on, almost any of your major platforms now you can access us anywhere uh we are regenerative landscapes and we'll see you next time